0: Great Spirit! I think I did it! I think I finally got this thing working! Uh, let's see, this is the first entry to my audio log, the year is 58 AF, and the date is September the 13th. I am EXTREMELY excited because I finally got this recorder to work. I found it in the junkyard, and it was mostly functional, but Kyle and a few others kept insisting it was a waste of energy usage to even fix. Good batteries are hard to come by, and harder to make. I know this from personal experience, but I found a solution. I simply rigged up a solar panel charger for it, using some old calculators and one of those little dancing flowers from dashboards. I mean, talk about a waste of energy. You'd think they'd use the solar power to power the cars and not those flowers. Actually, now that I'm saying it, maybe I could rig something up- No, that's a project for another day. Now, I know what you're thinking. What if you're stuck in a dark place, Moses? How will it charge? What if you're only traveling at night? Not to worry though. It still has the capacity to take batteries. In fact, I have a few rechargeable ones I found in an abandoned home right outside of the compound. Most of those places are picked over, but they're worth a look. I got lucky on one of my last trips. I even rigged up the charger to be solar powered, but I can plug it in to charge too, although I won't always be in a compound or around one to do so, so I won't always have the opportunity to charge them like that. But I believe I can scrounge up some spare batteries for extreme situations. I usually save them for experiments and the like, but I'll put some aside for this. The great spirit willing, I'll have enough off opportunities for power that I don't want to worry about it. Now uh, where was I? I sort of got distracted. I always get excited when something works and it can throw me into a tangent. Plus I'm not as good with electrical and mechanical sciences as I am with more organic fields such as medicine and biology, so when I fix or create something like this recorder, it always gives me a little feeling of victory. But as I was saying, this is my first entry to the audio log now that I've got my recorder to work. I will continue to take my written field notes and journals, but I figured it's good to have multiple copies of data and information in case one is destroyed. That's why I record all my field journals into a master copy at home anyway. Plus, speaking into a microphone will allow me to immediately take note of something so I don't forget to write it down, and I can record some things firsthand for my research and informational logs. It's weird, I feel like I'm addressing someone, but this is just for my personal records and research. I guess in a way I'm addressing myself. Hi, Moses. Oh, that's so good. Kyle says I talk to myself too much already, and I'm I'm inclined to agree with him, especially when working in my lab. I guess someone could find this at some point after my death, or before. If you do, stranger, or even person I know, please use my logs for good, especially if you stole them or killed me. If you use them for good, I will forgive you. If you use them for bad, I will also forgive you, but I won't be happy about it. Forgiveness is a key to a healthy soul and a strong relationship with the Spirit. You know how the old prayer goes, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Speaking of the Great Spirit, I guess it's also listening, and perhaps other deities as well. I mean, there's no denying their existence, although I'm not sure of their power or reach. Maybe there's a God of eavesdropping. I should look into that. I'll make a memo. Memo to myself. Figure out if there's a God of eavesdropping. Oh, it looks like I've rambled again. Perhaps this is the karmic punishment of the person who killed me for these logs, or perhaps I am easily distracted. I should get some rest. Tomorrow I do get to meet the rest of my team, Captain Martin said to report to him at 7am sharp, and I'd like to be awake and alert for my first mission with the new runner group. I should prep my med kit before bed. The year is 58AF and the date is September 14th. This is my second entry to my audio log, and great spirit, I am excited. I'm on the road with runner team number 5! They're my new team! I'm ecstatic! I should talk about the mission and where we're headed, but first I'd like to talk about the people I'll be working with from now on as a runner. So first there's Duke. I believe his last name is Anderson, though I've never asked. He isn't from the compound, but he's been with us a few years. I'm not sure where he's from, but he's friendly enough. I believe Kyle and I have shared a beer or two with him on occasion. I've gone to him when I need smithing work done as well, and he's never ruined a job. Scientifically speaking, he's a fine physical specimen. He's extraordinary in size. Six foot seven, I believe. And all muscle. You'd have to see it to believe it. But his muscle mass is extraordinary. He must be close to 270 pounds. I don't know where he finds clothes. I guess he's like that from the blacksmithing work. Objectively, he would be a very attractive man if it wasn't for the scars. They're all over his body, but they're particularly numerous on his face. When you count for those, I don't believe he's always been a blacksmith, and perhaps he came to our compound because of the life that gave him those scars. But as I said, he's kind and polite. I look forward to working with him. So then there's Lydia. Lydia is a complicated individual. She showed up in Jim Thorpe about a year and a half ago during the late winter. She was emaciated, tired, and ready to die. And with her were about several dozen people in the same state. They came from the compound near Boston. There was some sort of attack on their compound, and Lydia led them here to safety. Apparently there were hundreds of them at the start of the journey, but just under a hundred when they arrived here. They brought her and the others to my mother's clinic. I actually helped nurse her back to health, but she most likely barely remembers that time. She was practically comatose. Nowadays, if you want to find her, all you have to do is go to the tavern in the middle of town. She's always there. One time, a few of the compound's biggest idiots picked a fight with her. They were quickly sent to me for treatment with fractured ribs, broken noses, and one had his radius poking out of his forearm. After that, everyone lets her drink in peace and quiet. The weird thing is, Captain Martin told me that she is a much better sniper than hand-to-hand fighter. If she can do that to those men with her hands, I can't imagine what she would have done to them if she had a gun on her. There's also Kendra. She's certainly an interesting case. She came in from the wild, that same winter Lydia did. It was a terrible winter, and she was having a rough go of it. I treated her at my mother's clinic as well. She was suffering from frostbite, mild hypothermia, and it looked like the early stages of starvation. Apparently, she'd been living outside the compound on her own. Judging by the way she acts in social situations, it's like she's been living out there her whole life. She's very curt and abrasive. She can't read, not even a little bit, which is a life I can't imagine living. My books are everything to me. She's also distrusting of most people. She only deals with people in the compound when she has to. It's always business and never pleasure, from what I can tell. She seems to favor the company of cars and machines The automobile we're riding now is hers. In fact, she's a mechanical genius. That's how she's been making her living out here in the compound. Making things, fixing things, scrapping things, etc. I can't believe the capability she has at 19ish. Also I'm not guessing her age either. I asked her how old she was and she told me, I don't know, 19ish I think? Charlie I believe is the only one on the team that's actually from Jim Thorpe other than myself. I mean, technically she was born right outside the compound while her parents were traveling to it, but they were runners from the compound, and they were actually on their way back home from a mission when she was born. A few years later after Charlie's birth, though, they never came back from another mission. Her parents have been MIA, and they're assumed dead. It's pretty sad, but from what I understand, Charlie was f- fairly young, maybe four years old? I'm not sure. I was probably nine or ten at the same time, so I don't really remember very well. I do know that Charlie's parents weren't originally from the compound, so they didn't have any family to give her to. She grew up in the compound's orphanage after that. She's a very kind young lady. I've treated her a couple times. Thankfully, it was nothing as drastic as what I've treated Kendra and Lydia for. Just regular things most of the town comes to me for. A cold here, a sprained ankle there. Actually, I think there was a lot of sprained ankles in Charlie's case. She treats the town like a regular jungle gym. Apparently, she's also quite the navigational expert. She's riding Shunka now to help Kendra out with the route to our destination. Speaking of which, I should probably take note of where we're going and why. We're headed to a part of the Appalachian Trail that, according to Charlie's reckoning, is near the border of Pennsylvania and New York State. By foot, the journey would probably take a week. By mount, a couple days. But luckily, we've got Kendra's vehicle, so it'll just be several hours. I'm not sure I'd call it a vehicle, though, so much as a monstrous and metal contraption. It's a large truck with a metal cage covering the back. The cage is covered by a tarp for weather protection in case there are supplies or something riding in the bed. Kendra informs me that there are removable metal panels that can cover the cage, but she only puts them on in case of battle. Makes me wonder how often she drives this thing into battle. It's got larger than ordinary wheels, a cowcatcher on the front, and space for mounting a gun on top of the vehicle. It fits five in the cab, but it's a bit of a tight squeeze with Duke in here. Everyone is pleasant company, though, so I don't mind. I can always go into the bed if I have to stretch my legs. It's all actually connected by a small door to the cab. I'm impressed that Kendra built the whole thing by herself, with just random parts and the frame of an old Silverado she found. It's taken her a long time, probably the whole time she's been in the compound. She calls it the Thunderbird. It's a good thing we had the Thunderbird, too, because we'll probably get there just a few hours before dark. It would have been a much longer trip without it. There is some hiking we have to do before we get to our final destination, but I'm sure moving about a bit won't be so bad after sitting for so long. Oh right, I should probably talk about who we're meeting there and why. Well, there's a group of people who live along the Appalachian Trail called the Forest Rangers. They live in settlements that were once campgrounds and nature reserves. According to the captain, they have a sort of truce with our compound. Apparently, they aren't thrilled about the coal mining we do because it's destructive to the land, but they're willing to turn their heads if we come and aid them with problems and they, that they can't handle. And they'll aid us in times of our need as well. It's sort of a we scratch your back and you scratch ours situation. Captain Martin got a message that they needed our help and decided to send a runner team out to meet them and deal with the situation. We're that runner team. Ugh. Oh gosh, it seems I dozed off. I was rereading The Fellowship of the Ring and the next thing I knew it was dark and I was in a tunnel. All I heard was people screaming and crying out for help but I couldn't find them. There were things trying to grab at me and I could see a light at the end of the tunnel but no matter how quickly I moved towards it the light just always seemed just as far right out of reach. I was constantly chasing it but I couldn't get to it. I woke with a start when Duke sneezed and I realized (laughs) I must have been dreaming. According to Kendra and Charlie... We'll arrive at the rendezvous point within an hour. We've come to the rendezvous point. There was a man waiting for us. He calls himself Frank, and he's part of the Forest Rangers. I always thought that the name was sort of a metaphorical thing, because they consider themselves protectors of nature, and they use old campgrounds and park stations for dwellings. But Frank's outfit tells me it isn't completely metaphorical. He wears an actual ranger uniform, accented with some forest camouflage made out of various branches and leaves. He carries a rifle but he informs me that the majority of rangers use bow and arrows rather than firearms. Due to their living situation, they can only get ammo through trade, so they use it sparingly. I imagine they are fantastic craftsmen if they can construct their own weapons for hunting and protection. Frank brought a small mule as well to tote some supplies we brought from Jim Thorpe back to the camp. The mule is friendly, and I am told his name is Onion because he has an affinity for that very vegetable. Frank explained that we couldn't bring the Thunderbird onto the trail because the area was heavily wooded. Only people and animals could follow the trail to the end. Kendra was not thrilled about leaving it behind, to which the forest ranger stoically responded, Well, stay here with it if you'd like, and your friends can come with me. I wouldn't leave the cab after dark, though. After several minutes of serious consideration, Kendra opted to hide the Thunderbird in some underbrush and cover it with a camo tarp just in case. Can't be sure, but I thought I saw her give it a kiss and a gentle stroke before whispering, I'll be back soon, baby. The rest of the team either didn't notice or chose to ignore it. After Fra- that, Frank gave us a nod and said, Follow me. The sun will be setting soon, so we need to be moving quickly now. We've been hiking for about an hour now. The hike is long and a bit arduous, but nothing anyone from our compound was, is unused to. It's even easier for me since I carry my staff with me. I can use it as a walking stick. Charlie has been asking Frank a million questions about where the trail leads and splits and what significant landmarks are around. Every few minutes, she'll take a little sketchbook out and a compass and make some notes in the book. I believe she's drawing a map. Kendra actually seems very at ease in the woods. After a few minutes on the hike, she stopped griping about her car and became quiet, but not an angry quiet. She seems calm, as if she's at home. Lydia has had her rifle locked and loaded in her hand the entire time. She's constantly looking about her, assessing the area for signs of trouble and danger. She seems suspicious of every noise she hears and every shadow she sees. Duke has said little. He follows along, keeps an eye on the rear, and has been whistling a low tune as we move. I actually believe he's a little nervous of the forests and the growing darkness. Strange that such a large and powerful man would be fearful of the dark. Frank is polite and speaks when spoken to, but other than that, he is unemotive and quiet. He sometimes speaks up to tell us to watch our step when there's an obstacle, but says little else. I've been using the time to meditate and pray, quietly to myself as we walk. Nature often makes me feel closer to the Great Spirit. And onion huffs and heaves as he totes our supplies, and sometimes Frank throws him in a little snack. It is a good day. It is twilight now. The hike has been uneventful. Frank says we are about halfway there. I've been noticing a rustling in the trees. It's about a half hour after my last recording. The rustling has grown louder. Small objects have begun to fall out of the trees. Sometimes they nearly hit us. Onion seems uneasy. It's like he knows something's wrong. The sun has almost set. and Frank urges us to move faster and says we are nearly there. He seems worried. This is the first time he's expressed any concern on the whole journey. This makes me... Ow! Something hit me in the head! I think it was a rock. I'm fine, but it hit me pretty hard. Ah! Something hit me in the back. What was that? Spirit, protect us. Stones and branches are falling from the trees. Something is throwing them at us. I can see glowing yellow eyes from the trees, but it's too dark to make out the forms they belong to. There must be two dozen pairs, and they do not look friendly. Lydia stopped and is pointing her rifles at the trees. I believe she's going to try and kill whatever these creatures are. Oh, she got one, and another, another one fell. She got a third. I, I think, I think she killed them. Maybe it'll cause the rest to turn. Ow, damn it! All oh, right, just hit me in the forehead. I, uh, I think, I think she just pissed them off. Frank is telling us to run. Thank the Great Spirit. We're safe now. Those things that attacked us, argapelters is what Frank called them. They're these small primate creatures that are somewhere between a monkey and a raccoon. They use their long arms and tails to fling things at their enemies. They inhabit the more remote areas of the Appalachian Trail. They were thought to be an old folktale, but they seem to be real. Frank explained that they normally steer clear of people, and that's why many doubted their existence. But apparently they've grown quite aggressive, and have been frequently attacking the forest rangers' scouting parties and wayward travelers. It's, it's quite fascinating, especially since this is abnormal for their behavior. I should attempt to capture one for further study. I have once again digressed. If anyone other than myself listens to this, I'm sure they'd be interested about our escape. Plus, I could use this as a reference for tactics, and in case I ever study these creatures. As I said, we began to flee from the argopelters. Lydia tried to shoot behind her, but she was shooting from their hip, so many of her shots were wide. We ran for a while, and the whole time we dodged random debris that was tossed at us. Just as I thought we were about to be overrun by these figures, several people appeared from the underbrush, dressed in complicated camouflage, and armed with bows and arrows. A rain of arrows flew past us, and several of the creatures fell from the trees, Within seconds, there was another set of arrows, and more fell. The Argopelters cried in pain and anger. They had begun to retreat. The forest rangers had saved us. We've made it to the camp. Tribulation was written by Michael Suspaniak and Joshua Guzdowski. The script was edited by Samantha Paris. The Tribulation logo was designed by Christian Lally. It is based on a tabletop role playing game played by Michael Sispaniak, Samantha Paris, Kelly Doherty, Don Friedrich, Kimmy Hibbs, and Joshua Guzdowski. The voice of Moses Shepard is Joshua Guzdowski. The voice of the credits is Samantha Paris. Please subscribe to our podcast and stay tuned for the next episode of Moses' Adventure, which will be released on July 1st. Thank you for listening.